probably heard it said, you may have said it yourself. You gotta have faith, brother. You just gotta have faith. Well, what is faith? And that's the answer we try to give every week on faith is. What is faith? And we like to say to each other, faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Welcome to Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we are going to explore several ideas related to the concept of faith, faith in God. We're going to stretch each other. We want to help each other have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. We don't want to have, well, kind of, sort of confidence. We don't want to have confidence today and not tomorrow. We want to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Don't you? Shouldn't everyone? For God is, and he rules and reigns over the world, and we want to learn to trust him. There was an old song, maybe some of you have sung it, part of the song said, Oh, for grace to trust him more. And that's what we're going to try to do these days, is learn to trust him more, because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. As I said, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We are a real church with real people, and we struggle with all of the real problems that you struggle with, and we learn together. We encourage each other to keep our confidence in God. We don't want to lose heart. We don't want to lose faith. I was talking to someone last night about some of the problems in the world, and by the way, there are problems everywhere. In case you hadn't noticed, it doesn't take too much effort to find a problem. A lot more difficult to find a solution. And the other part of that problem related to the solution is things don't seem to change as quickly as we would like them to. You know, we didn't have the problems we have because they all of a sudden happened. They have developed over time. And I remind people, well, with some regularity, that when we're going to solve the problems, we got to realize it's a marathon, not a sprint. So if you've been working and trying to solve some problems, remember it's a marathon, not a sprint. Imagine what would happen, what would have happened, what never would have happened if the people that were advocating for life and for the overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision way back 50 years ago. Imagine if they had treated it like a sprint instead of a marathon. So we need to keep on going and not lose heart. And we want to have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And if we have that kind of confidence in God, we won't find ourselves losing heart. We want to keep on and press on and persevere it's a marathon, this life of faith. It's not a sprint. There are ups and downs. There are hurdles to overcome. But by the grace of God, we're going to have confidence in him, and we are going to overcome all of the challenges of life. So today we're going to take a little different perspective or a different approach to things. We've done this before, but it's summer and things are all scrambled in terms of the schedule. They were for me, they were for our church, and and we usually do something called instant sermon on the fifth Sunday of a month. Every time there's a month that has five Sundays, we take the fifth Sunday and have instant sermon. This year it would have been in July, so we're way behind in terms of the way we do things here. But we went ahead and had instant sermon, and, and I was so 
struck by some of the questions that I thought, well, you know, we're all scrambled by summer. Let's be scrambled here too. So we're going to take this opportunity to go over some of those questions. I don't think I'll get to all of them. But instant sermon, the way we do it at our church, is simply an opportunity for us to have a conversation about the things that are on our minds. And so when it comes to the fifth Sunday of the month, we distribute little three-by-five cards to everybody. People take them, but not everybody participates. It's not required. It's just an opportunity. Some people think all month about what their instant sermon question is going to be or comment or scripture reference or whatever. And other people, they just kind of on the spur of the moment will have something. And other people, they just, I think they never participate. That's fine. There's no pressure. But we give ourselves the opportunity to have this kind of a conversation. And I collect the cards that, well, the ushers collect the cards. And then they bring them to me. And we go through them and we talk about the things that are on our minds. We talk about them from God's perspective, from a biblical perspective. Sometimes people ask about a specific Bible verse. Sometimes they ask about other kinds of things. And, and um, you know, we, we just kind of have a conversation. I don't pretend it's the whole story on any of these things, but I do try to give a reasonable explanation. So we're going to plunge in and I'm going to read the questions just as I got them. And then we're going to talk about that a little bit. As always, some of them will probably be things that you already know and thought about. You may be surprised at some of the things that I think about them or that I believe the Bible points us to. And to be sure, I always want to help us think about it the way the Bible does. It's it's obvious, isn't it? My opinion doesn't matter. Uh, to be real honest with you, your opinion doesn't matter much either. But God's opinion, that matters a whole bunch. What God says is the truth, that matters a whole bunch. So we're going to take a look at these questions and and plunge right in. So first one was kind of interesting, and I guess I wasn't surprised because of all of the conversations out there in public life. But here's the first question. Are we commanded to welcome strangers always? We are being invaded across our borders. Does God want us to open our homes to them? Well, that's a good question, because we've heard Christian leaders try to use the Bible to make that case, to say, we have no choice but to welcome anybody and everybody that comes here, and and, and here being the United States, and we are simply to open our homes to them and our hearts to them and welcome them in whatever way we can. Well, I've listened to that conversation. I've looked into it a little bit. I'm not prepared on an instant sermon to give you all of the thoughts that the Bible might have on that. But it, it was real obvious to me real early on when we first started talking about these things that to make the Bible say what certain people these days with a political agenda have is simply way more than I can, I can come, wrap my head around. It's just simply a stretch. I believe they are stretching the Bible to make their political point, to be real blunt about it. Yes, the Bible says to us, without a doubt, love your neighbor as yourself. But in the context of the scriptures and in the context of our times, there's a whole lot of stuff that have to be reconciled there. Now, if somebody is in your town and is a neighbor to you by virtue of your exposure to them, then we're expected to love our neighbors as ourselves. No question about that. I don't think we walk around and pick and choose who we're going to be neighborly to. That's the point of the story of the Good Samaritan. But at the same time, 
There's no concept in the Bible like what they're trying to say today, that we have to open our borders, open our homes to anybody that knocks on the door. It just doesn't, it just doesn't add up. Now, to be sure, and we shouldn't miss this, this is very important, many people make the case that God placed his people, Israel, strategically in a geographic location that would expose all the world to the worship of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, often referred to as Yahweh in the Old Testament scriptures. There's there's a lot of evidence to that. I think they make an excellent point, because people in ancient times, when they traveled places, almost always had to go through the land that God gave his people. Consequently, those people would have had the opportunity to hear the testimony of those people, and that would have pointed them to the God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. And I think that's really smart of God. I mean, if you don't, I don't know if you think of God as smart. Well, he, he definitely is, but uh, way more than what our idea of smart implies. But it was such a genius move that God put his people right there so that they could be a vibrant testimony to the nations as they came through their land for trade or travel or whatever. And when they came through, God wanted to encourage his people to embrace them with friendship so they could be introduced to him. Indeed, you look at the temple. When Jesus went into the temple, he looked around. You remember right after the right after the triumphal entry, he looked around, and then later he came back and he he cleaned house. People like to make a lot of things out of that story. And okay, stories are meant for us to think about on more than one level. But really what Jesus was doing was he was cleaning up his house because the problem there was that they had displaced the Gentiles. See, they had set up their commerce, their trade, legitimate business dealings. There's no evidence that, and I looked into this extensively some years ago, no evidence that there was anything wrong with what they were doing. They were providing a legitimate service to people who came to worship God, but they were doing it in the wrong place. And Jesus said in the context of his actions there that they had turned his house into a den of thieves. He said that his house, his temple, was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And here they had set up commerce in the court of the Gentiles, the one place set aside in the temple for people who were not Jewish, who were not part of the tribes of Israel, to come and worship God. And Jesus said, you've, you've made it a den of thieves because you've robbed those people of the opportunity to know me. So clearly God wants people to know him, but to make the stretch from the things that we read in the scriptures to modern times with our nations as we understand them with borders and interests and reasons to be uh, careful about who goes where and who's coming in and for what reason. We have modern travel that makes it so much different dynamic than it was in those days. Populations are different. We have a much better understanding of disease, and the list goes on and on. And to try to make the, the correspondence between the Bible's admonitions to love your neighbor as yourself and to the responsibility then for any nation to open its borders to let whoever wants to come in, in it just doesn't, just doesn't add up. There's just no way that I think we can make that case. All right, next question. Where in the Bible does it explain we should elect righteous public servants? 
Well, that's not something you're going to find chapter and verse about, as far as I know. There are plenty of places where it talks about how people do well when the righteous are in charge. So when the right kind of people have the right responsibilities and they act rightly, then everybody benefits. And at the same time, the Bible points out both by straight up telling us this and by example, that when unrighteous people are in charge, bad things happen. That was true from the kings of Israel all the way through to the society as it developed all the way to Jesus' time. When there were scoundrels, uh, bad things happened. There's no question about it. So we learn from that, that then we have responsibilities when we have the opportunity to choose people that will handle things wisely and well. That happened in Acts, I believe it was chapter 2, when they had first appointed people to help the apostles. So we understand that both from the example of the Bible and from the straight-up statements of the Bible. What is different today, certainly among other things, is that we now have the opportunity to vote. I don't know of any place in the Bible, if you find it, I'd be happy to know, that there's any similarity to voting as we understand it in our country today. People didn't choose their rulers that way. They were chosen for them, or it was whoever was the the meanest or the, we might say, the victorious one in a battle, they became king. There was nothing like voting for the for, for an elected officer, for mayor of the town or anything like that. Well, in this country, by the gift of God, we have liberty. And we have the opportunity now to participate in choosing the people who have responsibility. We have limited government. The people we choose are supposed to operate by the will of the people, by the consent of the governed, our Declaration of Independence says. And so we have a whole different dynamic involved in that. And because God gave us this great gift of liberty and entrusted us with the responsibility to vote, then it's an easy thing to say that before God, we have a responsibility to preserve the gift of liberty and to choose good people and put the good people in places of responsibility. There's nothing wrong with people having those responsibilities. Somebody has to make decisions. We just need to make sure we choose the right ones. And remember, I say this often, Abraham Lincoln reminded us that we live in a country of the people, by the people, and for the people. The real challenge becomes the people embracing that responsibility and living up to it. And if we don't have a government that's for the people, it's because we, the people, have not chosen people to hold important offices who will restrain themselves and live by our principles and work for the benefit of the governed. When we elect people to put themselves first, we get put last. It's not a good thing. So yes, this is election season in Florida. We've just finished our primary election, so some things have sorted themselves out. All over the country, we're going to have a general election this fall, and you will have the opportunity to vote for candidates for office. I know you will face the same things, and you may get tired of hearing me say this because I think it's so important if the if the people of God had stepped up to these responsibilities instead of turned away and said, politics is messy, I don't want to get involved in it, it's dirty. If people had stepped up and 
and done the right thing over all these years, we wouldn't have the dirty, messy political environment we have today. We might not have all of our problems solved, but when you have righteous people in important positions, much better things happen. So we're going to need to make some good choices this fall, some wise choices. You're going to look at the ballot that you're given in the fall, and you're going to say, well, they're all scoundrels. Or you might say, I'm tired of having to choose between the lesser of two evils. Well, let me, let me remind you, there are sometimes really good people with the right motives that run for office. You need to find out who those people are and support them. They probably will not match your perspective on everything exactly. Uh, I've discovered that you just have to get over that. That's just life. But no matter how good or how bad they are, when you have to choose between two candidates, there is always one candidate that you can identify as the candidate that will lessen evil. And you can look at another candidate that you're sure by their statements, by the policy positions they hold, that they will make decisions that will increase evil. So always vote for the candidate that will lessen evil. Seems like we can all do that. Seems like we ought to want to do that. So I think we should step up and do that. So yes, I think the Bible will is very clear that we have that responsibility. I think God will hold us accountable for how we exercise that responsibility. It's not easy. It's not about choosing the person that ultimately wins. I can't tell you how many times I've voted and the candidate that I was sure was the best didn't win. Well, that didn't change anything about my judgment. It just demonstrated that not enough people understood that or participated. The other thing is this, and, and, and then we'll move on to other things. I know you get tired of hearing some of these kind of things, but these are important. We often think that the people that win elections are the people that most of the people supported. Well, that's not necessarily true. The people that win elections are elected because they were the choice of the people who voted. And far too many times, there is limited participation. I heard just recently that at the pace that early voting was going, only 13% of the voters were participating in the county where I live. It'll probably be a little higher than that when it's all said and done. But think about it. If that percentage is, is in the 30% or less, think about that. That's how many eligible voters participated. And those are the people that chose the office holders that will now make decisions for all of us. So remember, your participation matters. I know you get tired of it. I know you don't like the stuff you get in the mail. You're tired of the television ads. Turn off the television. You can escape them that way. But it's important to look beyond the mailers, beyond the television ads, and choose the people that will lessen evil. They may not match your party label, but they need to match God's label. And they need to be the people that will lessen evil in our towns, in our cities, in our states, in our counties, in our country. So vote for the candidate that will lessen evil. All right. If we keep this rate, I probably won't get to very many more questions. It seem, seems like I have a lot to say about all of them, but not quite so much about this next one. So here's the question. Is there such a thing as luck? Hmm. No, not as we generally think about it. I don't think that life is filled with those people who are lucky and those people who are unlucky. That's a 
common way of describing things. Oh, this was my lucky day. I get that. We use that word rather casually. But I think what the person was meaning by this question, and I don't know who submitted the question. I don't ask that. People are free to sign their names or not. In the same way that if it's a really left field question, I leave it out sometimes. I haven't had to do that much, but I will. If that ever happens. But you don't have to put your name on it. So most people, when they think of this concept of luck, have an idea that life just kind of unfolds. I think there's a little more to it from the Christian perspective, and that's kind of what I think was implied in the question. So we sometimes talk about God's providence, and the providence of God such and such happened, or this happened, I met this person, or this event took place. And by that, we mean that God had an active role in helping bring that to pass. And sometimes, we see this in the Bible, sometimes God intervenes decisively in human life, and and in circumstances, and he makes happen what he wants to happen. We see this when someone is miraculously healed, and that happens sometimes. It's not frequent by my experience, but it happens. Sometimes God does intervene, and that's not luck. That's because God was gracious to us, and he touched the person we care about, and he made them better, and we're glad for that. Other times, God doesn't intervene and we're sorry, but we trust him because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we trust him to unfold life as it needs to unfold. Now, the other side of this kind of concept of luck, the, the side that's uh, not embracing random activity, I, I'm not suggesting that everything is random that happens, but much happens because of human freedom. And those, those things just unfold because of the choices we make, the decisions we make along the way. Now, some people believe, and I don't believe this, I don't embrace this at all, some people believe that God causes everything that happens to happen. So everything that happens that's good, everything that happens is bad, is all for the glory of God. I don't think that at all reflects the God that's revealed to us in the pages of the Bible that's come down through us by the testimony of the saints through history. See, if I had to believe that God caused everything that ha happens to happen, then I would have to believe that God causes bad things to happen, evil things to happen. And that's inconsistent with the Bible's revelation that we have a good God who cares about people. And I can't reconcile that God who is good would be the author of evil. And so I can't I can't go down that road with with people who who say God causes everything to happen. I just can't do that. At the same time, I can't go down the road to say, that with people that say, well, it's just luck and God is not involved. Um, God is involved as He chooses to be, and He's much involved when He gives us instructions so we will make good choices. That is another way that God helps bring about good things for people, telling people, good people, hopefully, to make good choices. All right, moving right along. Here's one about Lazarus. After Lazarus was raised from the dead, was he ever seen or heard from again? Now, that's a good question. You probably remember, I'll remind us of the story of Lazarus. Jesus got word that his friend Lazarus, whose sisters were Mary and Martha, was ill, and they were encouraging him to come because they knew, knew he needed the touch from Jesus to make him well. He was very sick. 
Well, Jesus didn't get there in time. Lazarus died. By the time Jesus got to Bethany, Lazarus' hometown, Lazarus had been buried for a few days. They didn't wait long in those days to conduct the final service and burial. And so he got there, and Mary and Martha were distraught and concerned and upset at all the things you can imagine, and said to Jesus, if you'd come sooner, we wouldn't have to go through all of this. You could have touched him. And you may remember that's often called the shortest verse in the Bible, as far as I know it is, the way verses are outlined. Jesus wept. He understood the, the sadness, the, the loss. He understands your sadness, your loss too, by the way. And so he reminded them that uh, he had everything handled and that they would see the glory of God. And he went out and spoke to Lazarus and commanded Lazarus to come out of the tomb. And guess what? Here he came. And so Lazarus came back to life. And yes, Lazarus lived some time longer than that. We don't know how long, but ultimately Lazarus died. Now, part of the reason for the question is that the New Testament doesn't record a lot of the details of what Lazarus did afterwards. I mean, we know he, he lived, but that's all. We don't know from historical sources or anything else. So people sometimes ask the question, well, what happened to Lazarus? Well, he lived the rest of his life that was given back to him, and then he died. The way I like to think of this, and maybe this will help you too, Lazarus, when he died, he, yes, came back to life, and he was the same person he was before. He still had his physical body. He still had the same personal attributes. He was the man he had been, only he had died, and now he was alive again. Well, people compare that to the resurrection of Jesus, and understandably so, so because Jesus was killed, brutally killed. He was buried. The third day, he rose again. The important thing about Jesus is that he rose again in an entirely different form than he had when he died. He was human when he died. When he rose again, he had a transformed body. We might say a heavenly body, glorified body. Different terms are used to describe that, but it's very different. So Lazarus died and came back to life. Jesus, on the other hand, went through death to life on the other side. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, Jesus went through death as atonement for sins, and then was resurrected by the power of God to new life. And that new life represents what happens on the other side of this life to those who are in Christ. We are raised to new life in much the same way, or will be raised, I should say, we aren't yet, we will be raised to new life at the resurrection of the dead. And so we will then have a different body, very different than what Lazarus had when he came back from the tomb. We will be now the people who have gone through death following Jesus, and he will bring us out the other side in a similar way that he came out the other side. So there's a difference between Lazarus experience and the experience of Jesus and the experience we anticipate. And that's important for us to, to kind of keep that in mind. We, we, got, we have to understand what changed in the resurrection of Jesus and what changed when Lazarus came back to life. We sometimes use the word resurrection for Lazarus' return, and, and that's understandable. We, we understand that use of that word, but it wasn't the same as what happened with Jesus. When Jesus came back to life, it was remarkable. Everything was different. He went from 
completely devastated in death. I mean, it was a brutal crucifixion, brutal execution, to 100% restoration, and then some, to a body that was glorified, that was then ultimately taken back to heaven. He ascended to his father in that same bodily form. So it's going to be really interesting to see what what God has for us at the end of time, and how he, he explains to us what's going on, both in our resurrected body and in the resurrected body of Jesus, because it isn't going to be the same as Lazarus coming back to life. It's a very different and very um, amazing sense of what happened to Jesus to change him when he was resurrected. And that's our hope. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, gives us new life today, and one day we'll give new life to everybody that's in Christ. And I hope that's you. And that's important that we understand that it just doesn't happen. It happens because we've given allegiance to Jesus. We have that assurance of salvation and and life with Jesus after we die because we have given allegiance to Jesus and put him first in our lives. And a lot of people want to think nice thoughts about Jesus and believe there is a God and believe Jesus lived. Lots of people believe that. The proof is overwhelming. But far fewer people want to have faith and want to live their lives with absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so Jesus invites us to change our lives and to walk with him to trust him, pattern our lives after him. And I hope you will take that invitation opportunity seriously and take it today. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We're about to take a break. I hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back with some more questions and biblical answers. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. As 
As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Well, welcome back. We're still here on Faith Is because faith is the absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God for which we all aspire. Faith is important, and faith is what we want to pursue because we want to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So I invite you to develop that confidence with us. That's what we do every week here, and we keep stretching, and we're going to keep developing, and we're going to get more and more confident as we trust God together. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Our church is pleased to bring these programs to you because we want people everywhere to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. When we trust Him, everything about our lives is different. When we doubt Him, Everything in our lives is bad. When we trust him, it doesn't mean everything is solved, but it means we have hope and a future because our confidence is not in the circumstances around us. Our confidence is in the Christ within us, and we can have that kind of faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So we've been doing instant sermon here today. We've been taking a look at some questions, real questions that that people in my church submitted for us to have a conversation about last Sunday, I think is when we were, maybe it's two Sundays ago, I can't remember now. But these were questions that they submitted. I thought they were pretty good questions and, and things that we maybe should talk about that maybe will help some of the rest of us think about things a little bit differently, maybe a little bit more biblically accurately. So let's see if we can get to some more. The next question, do you believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today and are happening as well? And the answer is yes, I believe that if we're defining the gifts of the Spirit as the Bible defines them. I sometimes think people get caught up in some mystical or other distortions of what God has, has intended for us. But the New Testament is quite clear that, that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to his people. And as a follower of Jesus, he gives gifts to all of us. I don't know how many, I don't know which ones, but the Spirit reveals those to us. They are by His design and purpose, by His choice. I don't get to choose the gift that I want. He gives it to me and expects me to use it to benefit the people of God. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, you will see a list. If you look at Romans 12, you'll see another list. So there's some overlap between these lists. Ephesians chapter 4, you'll see some more. And what it indicates is that God among his people, gives certain people special abilities to do the things that the church, the people of God, need. So one of those is hospitality. Now, some people, depending on the way they define spiritual gifts, that's why I said if you define it the way the New Testament does, the way the Bible does, then yes, there are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and so hospitality is one of those gifts. Some people just have the gift of making people welcome, maybe in their home, maybe at church. Some of us are not particularly good at that. I don't think I have the gift of hospitality. 
Doesn't mean I'm a sorry, mean old rascal. Just means it doesn't seem to come easily for me. And I see other people, and I'm just amazed and grateful that they are so easily hospitable. That's what we need. And so you look at all the gifts and you'll find different ones. Now, I think I'm gifted at some other things, and it's my responsibility then to live out those gifts and to put those into play, to develop those gifts, to use them for the glory of God. So that's my responsibility, and it's your responsibility. If God has given you a gift or gifts, usually we we discover that there's more than one gift. But if you think you only have one, just work on it. You may have the gift to work with children. Well, that's a great gift. I'm not gifted particularly at working with kids. I like them. I don't have anything against them. But there are other people that are just so natural and easy that I want to say they're supernaturally gifted, and that's what makes it easy, because the Holy Spirit works in them to work with kids. Well, that's a good thing. So whatever your gift happens to be, you need to make sure you identify it, develop and use it. Now, one of the ways you identify it is if the people of God agree that you have this particular gift. If they don't think you do, then look around. There must be a different gift that you're missing. Some people try to choose what they think are greater gifts than other gifts, and that becomes a trap. We don't seek the gift. We seek the one who gives the gift and then faithfully serve. And who knows? There's biblical evidence for this. If you are faithful with the gift God has given you, you might be surprised at the other gifts that he is kind enough and gracious enough to give you. But as you get more gifts, you have more responsibility to use those for the kingdom's sake. So go get them. Go use those gifts God has given you and help the people of God benefit from the gifts of the Lord of the church. All right, the next question comes to us by way of a scripture verse, and it's 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and I think it's pretty close to the, um, to the way that the, the Christian Standard Bible uses it, but let me read it the way the person wrote it on the card, and then I'll read it from the text that I most frequently use, the Christian Standard Bible. So it's 1 Thessalonians 5.23, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the translation that I frequently use, it reads like this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yeah, that's a prayer I would pray for all of us, for sure. But the question came out of this uh, differently. The question that was attached to the verse was, are the spirit and soul two separate entities? Well, that's a, that's a good question. It's a fair question. We should talk about some of those kinds of things. Now, there's a lot of thought that goes into this, and a lot of people have one perspective, and a lot of people have another perspective. I can only tell you what has been most useful to me as I've tried to understand this whole concept of spirit, soul, and body, and the way the Bible uses them. So let's start with spirit. As I understand it, spirit is that which represents the life in us. There can be a lifeless body and it has no presence of the Spirit. When the Spirit is present, the person is alive. And so the, the Spirit of a person is that which gives life and animates the physical part of the body. The body is the physical part that requires Spirit for it to operate. You can have a body, but it doesn't operate. It doesn't do anything without the presence of the Spirit. 
Now, that's not to say that the body is bad. You know, that's a heresy that the church has wrestled with over time, and and some mystical religions still advocate this, that the body is somehow bad, and if we were freed from the body, we would be okay and even better off. That's not the Christian view. Remember, when God created all the physical world, he said it was good. He thought people were very good. So God does not have a negative view, nor should we, of the physical, of, of our physical bodies, of the, of the physical bodies of the people around us. We are created as physical beings, and the Spirit gives us life. So that's spirit and body. What about soul? Well, the way I think about soul is this, and this has helped me more than anything else. Maybe it'll help you. What we call the soul of a person is that unique combination of spirit and body. So we have the spirit that animates us, comes from God. We have the body that God created, and when they are united, that body comes alive and has then a soul. And one way to think about the soul is that's the part of us that thinks and acts and chooses, hopefully wisely and well. So we have a soul that is our responsibility to shepherd so that we think right, we expose ourselves to the truth, and then we choose right. We make ourselves go in the direction that we should. So that's spirit, soul, and body. Spirit, the life that God gives us, a body without the spirit is is dead. A dead body with the spirit is alive. And the combination, the unique combination of spirit and soul, physical and spiritual, become, uh, becomes soul. And that's, that's our thinking, choosing, acting portion. So, okay, hope that helps. Let's go ahead to the next question, because we got a couple more, and I would like to get to both of them. Then we can say we completed the task. So the second question is, the second question from the end, next question, does God still speak to his prophets about what happens in our world? Well, there's a lot in that question, and, and part of the question is, does God speak to people? Does he speak to people we call prophets? Um, who are those people that are identified in the question as prophets? And and how does that all kind of play together? Well, clearly, the Bible talks about certain people who are prophets, names them Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Daniel. And those people, some of them, several of them, behaved in ways to help God's people get on track and to return to faithfulness to God. Some of those people that we call prophets from the Old Testament, many of them, several of them, they talked about things that would take place in the future, far distant future from them. Isaiah is one we particularly notice every year during Advent because we remind ourselves of his prophecies pointing to the coming of Messiah, the birth of Jesus. So whenever you talk prophets, you have to start at the baseline to say, are we talking about a prophet as the Bible explains it, or are we talking about a prophet today? Prophets as the Bible explains it had two functions, to speak God's word to the people and to correct them and to keep them on track, and in some occasions, 
on some occasions to predict the future. Some of it was not difficult. Sometimes they could easily say, if you keep going down this unrighteous road, God is going to punish you. And he did. We see that over and over. And so people get caught up in the predictions of the future when what the prophet was trying to say was, avoid this future by reforming your life and doing what God says. The prophet wasn't so much telling them, oh dear, oh me, oh my, bad things are going to happen. That wasn't so much the point as the point was, avoid these bad things, turn to God, change your life. You don't want this to happen. But if you continue down this road, it will happen. You can't fool God. And by the way, you can't fool God. How many people keep trying to do that today? So we need to understand that two-sided coin of the prophets, the ones, the, the role of the prophet that was to warn the people and to get them back on track to speak God's word to the people, and the role of the prophet, which was part of it, but not so much the primary part of saying what's going to happen in the future. Today, we have people who put themselves out there as prophets. By that, they are assuming, presuming, telling us that they can tell us what's going to happen in the future. I think we need to have a big caution related to all of that. I rarely hear, and partly that's because I don't follow it, so that, that's fair. Don't, don't say, well, you should have heard about this. Maybe I should have. But I rarely hear of a person who puts themselves out as a prophet who makes a prediction that doesn't turn out to be true then withdrawing from the public stage and saying, I guess I'm not a prophet. Don't listen to me anymore. Well, I think we should hear more of that from these people who put themselves out as predictors of the future. I also think this. While they have a responsibility for their behavior, you and I have a responsibility for who we listen to. And I think the more we seek after trying to know what's going to happen tomorrow, the more we open up our world to abusive things and we encourage people to do something they should not do. God was not so interested in telling us what's going to happen tomorrow, any place that I can see in the New Testament. Certainly there's a link between bad behavior now and bad consequences later. Un undeniable, okay? But that's not what people tend to seek today. People today tend to seek the answers to stuff that they're all wrapped up and concerned about right now. And they want to know, how is this circumstance here going to turn out? How is this circumstance over there going to turn out? Is so-and-so going to get well? Is this situation going to turn out to, for the good, or is it going to continue to deteriorate? Those kind of things. I don't think we should be caught up in that. I think the idea is faith. You've heard it here, haven't you? Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And instead of worrying ourselves about what's going to happen tomorrow, we should spend our time expressing gratitude that we can trust God. Now, let me also say this, on behalf of all my ministerial colleagues out there, all the pastors everywhere, pastors have a dual role. People don't always like both sides of that role. We have to exercise those responsibilities in appropriate ways and at different times in different places. So all pastors have a prophetic role. They speak to the people on God's behalf. When we look at the Bible and the Bible says, don't do this, it's our responsibility to tell the people, don't do this. God says it's bad for you. Knock it off. That's being a prophet, guiding the people to get on track and to stay on track with God. 
we talk about repentance. That's a role of a prophet. Repent means change your life. The other role of pastor that people like a lot more, and you can understand why, is when we speak to God on behalf of the people. So people will gather the church together and want somebody to pray for them. And pastors will often lead those prayers. And, and we're happy to do that. I sometimes amusingly think and sometimes say out loud that when I'm with a group of people, I've become the designated prayer. Well, that's a pastoral office to remember the people in the situation before God. I don't mind that. I don't shrink from that. I also recognize that everybody else can pray too. And most of the time they do that as well. But we have those dual roles. One of the things you might ask yourself about this business of, of prophets is, is your pastor at the church you attend? By the way, you do go to church, don't you? Oh, okay, good. Uh, you're starting next week? Well, if you can start this week, that's better, but okay. We need to be there, and we need to make sure our pastors are exercising both of those roles, both the corrective role of speaking to the people on God's behalf and also the intercessory role of speaking to God on behalf of the people. Both of those are important. Both of those should be in place in your church. The pastor never tells you to straighten up that God says this, and he'd probably say it nicer than that. Then you got to wonder, are they giving you the whole counsel of God? If your pastor always says nothing but how bad you are and how much you need to get straightened out, then you got to wonder, is he ever talking to God on your behalf so that God will give you grace? You get the idea. And I just want to encourage you to make sure that you think about those in both senses and make sure you encourage your pastor to be prophetic, to tell you what God is teaching him or her, to make sure that you hear what God has to say to your church and to you as an individual. All right, dun, 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 the last question. We made it. And the question is pretty simple. <laughs> uh, and it's fine, but it's just list the scripture verse, John 17, 17. And below that, it says, expound. Well, you don't really want to tell a pastor to expound very often, but that's what the writer said. So let's take a look at John 17, verse 17. So to do that, I'm going to read that from the Christian Standard Bible. And I'm going to also read it from another English translation, because I, maybe this will help a little bit. But let's start with the Christian Standard Bible. I use various English translations in trying to make sure that I keep the sacred story straight. John 17, verse 17, from the Christian Standard Bible, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And those are the words of Jesus. He's praying, and he's saying to God, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth fair amount of um, good stuff in that verse. But one of the questions that comes up is, what's that word sanctify mean? Well, it can mean a variety of things, and depending on the way it's used in the scriptures, one other English translation says it this way. This is the New English translation. I like it a lot. It helps me a lot. But John 17, verse 17, in the New English translation, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. So sanctify sometimes has to do with purify, sometimes has to do with set apart. In either case, those overlap, because if we're going to be purified, then that means we're set apart. And if we're set apart and purified, then there must be some usefulness for us. And so here in these simple thoughts of Jesus and in his prayer for us, that means you and I, because he was pray praying for his people. 
that he's asking the Father to set them apart or to sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, what, what's going on here? Well, we live our lives of faithfulness to Jesus by hearing him tell us the truth and then following that which is true. And so here Jesus is saying that our lives are made right, are set apart or purified by the words of God, by the scriptures, by Jesus' words, because those words are the truth. These days, we don't always have people who are interested in finding out the truth. We have your truth, my truth, her truth, their truth, somebody's truth. But when the Bible talks about that, it's talking about the truth. Maybe we could say capital T, truth. We're not talking about opinions. Too many times people, when they use the word truth today, are really meaning opinions. Well, my truth is, or they could more accurately say my opinion is, I think they use the word truth because they want to reinforce their opinion and get you to accept it as true. Well, they may have a valid opinion, and they're allowed to have opinions on lots of things, but there isn't a variety, there isn't a a, a multiple-choice question that says, these are all truths, which one do you like? No, there is truth that is represented by the Word of God, that which is true. And one of the things we need to remember is that the Word of God needs to guide us to the truth in all of the areas of life, so that if you approach a subject that is informed by sociology, for example, there's nothing wrong with studying sociology. We can benefit from the insights of sociologists. But we also have to remember that the truth of the Bible informs sociology and must inform our understanding of sociology. So where a sociologist might, and I don't know if they would say this, okay, maybe a psychologist would say this, when they say, well, you've been offended by someone or they've hurt you in some way, you need to use your anger to motivate you and to give you strength and to make you strong so that you can be the person you were meant to be. The Bible comes along and says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so when psychologists or sociologists or whoever, I don't know, I'm not trying to paint them in a corner, just using that as an illustration, when anyone tells us that that an offense is to be fed and, and nurtured to make us stronger, we look at the Bible and we say, no, that's wrong. No matter how you got to that conclusion, that's just wrong. Because the Bible says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so that's an illustration of how the truth of the Bible informs our understanding of life. And that's how we become set apart or sanctified, purified, when we follow what God says. When we nurture our anger, when we think about revenge, we certainly are not loving our neighbor as ourself. And the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. So if you would like to be forgiven by God and other people, then shouldn't we be the first to forgive? See, those are the, that's an illustration, a very pertinent one, I think, because a lot of people struggle with this forgiveness idea that helps us understand that, that the truth of the Bible is intended to help us 
sort our way through all of the information of our age and all of the alleged wisdom of our age so that we can get to that which is true and right, and we can live our lives by that. And thank the Lord for that, because he's given us that kind of wisdom and that kind of insight. And so if you struggle, whatever area of life, look at the Bible and find out what the Bible tells you to do about it. Read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. See what Jesus said to the people. You'll learn straight up some very important things about how you're supposed to behave. If you struggle with putting God first in your finances, read the Sermon on the Mount. Find out. God wants us to put him first in everything. And when we do that as an expression of our trust. You want to have faith? If you haven't been faithful to God in giving, go to your church and start paying your tithe and get caught up on your tithe and do that. And as you as you put that in the offering, you say to God, God, I trust you. I have absolute confidence in your trustworthiness, and I'm going to do this because you've called me to do it. See, haul off and, and follow the truth that God gives us, and you'll find your life is a whole lot different in whatever area it is. It may be something totally different. Maybe it's Sabbath observance. Maybe you've been stealing from somebody. I don't know. Maybe I've been honoring your parents, but do it. That's the truth that God calls us to live. Well, I just got prophetic on us, didn't I? And I want to now end with a little bit of encouragement that God is with us. He wants to help us. He is for us, and he gives grace for us to turn to him. So I want to encourage you to exercise faith and receive that grace and follow Jesus all the way until next time on Faith Is. 